All right. God bless you guys. Good morning. Well, we are finishing up a uh, message series that I hope has helped you in navigating this new year and navigating uh, your goal setting. And uh, yeah, keep coming up right about there, Pastor Dan. Thank you so much. And um, uh, the hope is that instead of feeling the defeat of not achieving your goals as you had planned on, that you're going to feel a sense of accomplishment for just getting started. I opened up with the passage, and, and I hope you'll keep it in mind and, and maybe even memorize it in whatever translation works for you. Despise not the small beginnings, because God rejoices in just the start of the work. God's happy when we just get started. Some of you are old enough to maybe remember this. I do. We watched it on TV, actually, in class when I was in high school. January 1986, millions of people were watching as the Challenger space shuttle exploded just 76 seconds into takeoff, taking the lives of, as you remember, seven of the astronauts that were on board, all the crew. The explosion, they later found out, was the result of faulty O-rings that failed at certain temperatures. One of the NASA engineers actually brought this up to the NASA executives, but they failed to do anything about it because it would mean having to delay the launch. And there was so much publicity around the launch, they just could not fathom delaying the launch. And so it cost billions of dollars, but more importantly, it cost seven families their loved one. Now, it could have been avoided if simple maintenance had been done, if simple checking had been done on the own, simple testing had been done. The fact is, it was known before it happened. On January 31st, a little bit more recently, in the year 2000, Alaska Airlines Flight 261 crashed into the Pacific Ocean Maybe you remember it because it was off Anacapa Island here in California, just about two miles off the shore. That international flight from Mexico, it was supposed to arrive in Seattle, Washington, had experienced a catastrophic loss of pitch control, and all 83 passengers and the five crew members were killed in that crash. That also could have been avoided because investigators found out it was simply inadequate maintenance. Excessive wear and eventual failure of the critical control systems was caused because of insufficient lubrication of just a jack screw assembly in the aircraft stabilization system. And do you want to know why the failure to maintain that was? It was because Alaskan Airlines were trying to save money and cut costs. Both of these tragedies could have been avoided. These catastrophic losses of life could have been avoided. They were avoidable from the beginning. They were known issues. They were fixable issues. But because of the cost of either time or the cost of money, they decided they would push forward even at the peril and the loss of life. 
I want to tell you that that terrible decision-making happens every single day, and not just with the, the, the uh, thoughtless and heartless executives of NASA or of Alaskan Airlines or any other major corporation who cuts out safety checks and proper maintenance, but it happens with you and I sitting in this room. What I mean to say is, <clears throat> that our goals, our dreams, our resolutions, our plans, our ideals to change our life, they will fracture, they will implode, they will explode, and they will crash in a blazing ball of fire into the ocean, not because we're blindsided by some outside diabolical force, but because of simple lack of scheduled maintenance. Simply checking in on the systems that keep us moving forward. For some inexplicable reason, we think that in order for us to win at life, to win at our marriage, to win at work, to win at making money, to win at building a retirement, to win at promotion, that we have to maintain a breakneck speed, an all-out effort in everything we do that when we take time to rest, that somehow we're cheating life of our contribution and that we're cheating our marriage of our contribution, we're cheating work of our contribution because that's what we've been told. You're not working hard enough. You've got to hustle harder if you want to make it, if you want to succeed, if you want to win. It was a crowd of people that just didn't get that like you and I don't get it. And Jesus asked a question to them that he already knew the answer to. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says it this way. Are you tired? Are you worn out? You burned out on religion? Well, then come to me. Get away with me. As a matter of pull away from all of that and you'll recover your life. You'll win it back. I'll show you how to take real rest. And then he says, walk with me and work with me. You notice that living doesn't stop in order to take a rest. He says, watch how I do it. Learn the, I love this translation, the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything on you that's heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. And Jesus was talking about it in the context of maintaining marriages and maintaining the crops that they were harvesting and maintaining the work that they did and not abandoning being parents, but changing the way you live your life in such a way that rest is part of the race. That as you race, you are racing towards your next moment in which you recover, in which you rehabilitate, in which you refresh, in which you renew. But we don't get that. We think by stopping and resting and maintaining, even moments like this, this interferes sometimes with life. It interferes with football games. It interferes with work. It interferes with family obligations. But I have to tell you that every moment of rest fuels you for the next season of growth in your life. I want to get the rest I really need because, number one, pull out your notes if you're online with us or and you're sitting in here, you can open the Summit Church app and follow along and fill that in. I want to get the rest that I really need because, number one, I don't want to make decisions on an empty tank. I don't want to make decisions on an empty tank. So about 15 years, actually it's going to be uh, 15 years in March, 
that I took over as lead pastor, and I thought maybe I was ready for it, but I was feeling a ton of anxiety. I was emotionally exhausted. I was mentally exhausted. I was spiritually exhausted, and I really felt like I had taken on more than I was ready for, and I was 100% right. It was more than I was ready for, and without God, I was going to fail miserably. But a mentor had shared some of the best advice I've ever received about anything, but especially about leadership, especially about succeeding in this new role that I was taking on. And he said to me, don't ever make a meaningful decision when you're tired, because you'll probably make the wrong decision. Now, I have not. I have not, in all honesty, over 15 years. I'm better, much better at it now, but probably the first five years of pastoring here, I made a lot of decisions when I was emotionally, physically, spiritually, or mentally tired. And I will tell you that I learned very quickly in each one of those circumstances that drained decisions are dumb decisions. When you are drained, you will almost always make a dumb decision. Every once in a while at the roll of the dice, you might get it right, but I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, you're going to make a dumb decision when you're drained. So there's a great story in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings where this prophet, very famous prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah, he had gone up against the prophets of the false god Baal. And it didn't end well for the prophets of Baal. They ended up getting captured and killed. And news made its way back to Jezebel who had married actually the king of Israel at the time right? And uh, she was a wicked woman, and she was a worshiper of Baal, and so she got very, very upset when she found out that her priest had been killed by this prophet of the God of Abraham. And so she sent a messenger to Elijah to tell him, I'm going to kill you by morning. And that's where we pick up in this story in 1 Kings 19, 3 through 8. When Elijah saw things how, how things were, When he saw the writing on the wall, when he saw things were not going his way, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah, and he left his young, so he and his servant take off literally running for their lives, and he left his young servant there, and then he went on into the desert another day's journey. And he came to a lone broom bush, so he's out in the middle of the desert, came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, exhausted. Wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. What a queen right there. Just just drama, just drama. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom brush. Suddenly an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and to his surprise... Right by his head were a loaf of baked bread and some coals and a jug of water. And he ate the meal, and then he went back to sleep. And the angel of God came back and shook him awake again and said, Get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. And he got up and ate and drank his fill, and he set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God to Horeb. I love this story because he gets some devastating news. His life is literally in danger and he runs like any sane person would. He takes off running as fast as he can. He leaves his servant and he goes, I'm going to go even further. So if they catch up, they're going to kill him first. 
I'll give them something to do. I don't know that that was his motive, but it probably was. I'll at least, I just have to run faster than him. I don't have to run, right? I just, they just need to get somebody. And exhausted, he falls asleep. He's ready to die, though. He's ready to just cash it all in. God, just kill me right here in the desert. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it amazing how dramatic we can be when we're tired and when we're hungry? And you know what helped was a nap and a snack. I mean, if you walk away with any spiritual truth, it's that God encourages naps and snacks. Right? He falls asleep. An angel wakes him up and goes, hey, grumpy pants, go ahead and eat something. He has this meal prepared for him. He drinks the water, and he falls back asleep again on a full stomach. He naps again, and the angel says, eat again because you've got a big journey. And not only does he do it, he gets up and he heads out on the longest hike that you've ever heard of. 40 days and 40 nights, he travels into the destiny and the plan of God. Just earlier, he was ready to die. He was ready to give up. He was ready to surrender. He was ready to concede to the fact that life had ended for him. And he took enough pause to realize that that decision, maybe after the nap and after the snack, he realized that that decision-making was the wrong decision-making because he was exhausted. And that's no time to be making decisions about your life. Secondly is this. I want to get the rest I really need because I don't want to burn up and burn out. I don't want to burn up and burn out. Now, most cars today are equipped with um, an LED screen or a couple LED screens somewhere that, uh, you know, I've got a stereo that's all touch screen and I've got the, the control panel in between the, the gauges on the, on the whole control panel. Um, and, and that has vital information. It tells me my speed. It tells me when I'm due for an oil change. It tells me I have multiple odometer selections, so I can tell how long I've been driving that day or how long I've been driving that month. It tells me my fuel efficiency. But I will tell you one of the most important functions of that gauge is that it tells me how many miles I have left until my tank runs dry. And when I see 20 miles left, I see that as a warning that it's time to refuel. Lisa, on the other hand, sees it as a challenge <laughs> to prove the computer wrong. I've been in that car with her when I've said, honey, you need gas. And she says, I know how long I've got to go. I do this all the time. <sighs> But I have to tell you, it's not just an innocent run out of gas inconvenience on the side of the road while you wait for AAA to bring you a couple gallons of gas to get you to the gas station. You may not know this, but when we run on fumes, we actually cause significant and lasting damage to our engines. It will overheat your fuel pump because gas actually cools your fuel pump as it's operating, and when it has none, it it will overheat it and burn it up. And then one of the most dangerous things that happens is the lower you go in your tank, the more sediment you're introducing into your fuel system. You see, that all settles to the bottom of that tank 
And as you get lower and lower and lower, the worst quality of that fuel is introduced into your fuel tank. It clogs the filter, it clogs the fuel injectors, and your engine will experience catastrophic failure when all of those systems begin to work against you instead of for you. You probably see where I'm going with this. That we actually cause damage to ourselves when we just keep pushing it further and further and further. We don't have an LED screen in our life to tell us when we're nearing empty, but there are usually some pretty good warning signs. There's usually somebody that will speak up and tell us that we appear to be maybe drained emotionally or physically, spiritually, relationally. In one way or the other, there are warning signs, there are red lights, there are things that flash on our emotional dashboard, our spiritual dashboard to tell us it's time to refuel. But instead, we tend to try to run on those fumes. That emotional fuel tank begins to run dry. The spiritual fuel tank runs dry. The physical fuel tank runs dry. And can I tell you this? When one of those tanks start to go empty, it starts pulling fuel from the other tanks. So relationally in your marriage, if things are not going well and it's drawing a bunch of your energy, I'm telling you, your spiritual, emotional, mental, everything's going to be drained because your emotional tank is low, it's empty, and it's pulling anywhere it can just to survive. So while you think maybe that you've stressed yourself physically, I want to tell you that it's impacting you emotionally, it's impacting you spiritually, it's impacting you financially. You are making the wrong decisions that keep depleting that necessary fuel of rest, of reflection, of rebuilding, of all of the things that we need to do during our times of rest. Listen to what Jesus did in Matthew 14, through 23. Immediately, Jesus told his followers to get into the boat and go ahead of him across the lake. So he sends away his closest friends, and he stayed there And he began to send the people home, those who he had been teaching and ministering to, healing. And after he had sent them away, he went by himself up into the hills away from them to pray. And it was late and Jesus was there alone. Jesus understood that after ministry, after doing good, after being with people, After feeding them spiritually and physically and healing and doing all that he did, that he was empty. It takes energy to do what we do in life. And even those who were closest to him were becoming a drain to him. Because people aren't always sensitive to how drained you really are. And so innocently, they continue to draw on you and drain you even more. And because you're obligated by love, you tend to want to give. But Jesus sent everyone away, and he went to a remote place even though it was late because he understood the importance of not burning up and burning out, of not running on fumes alone. Jesus needed to recharge because he understood that he had given himself significantly And I'm telling you that you and I are no different than him, that when we do good, I got to tell you, when we have a really successful church service or a successful church event, all of us on staff, we feel this big adrenaline rush. We feel so good about it. We're so thrilled that it went the way that it did. We meet on Tuesday mornings to debrief about the weekend and talk about the upcoming weekend and talk about events that are getting ready to happen. 
And can I tell you that that glow doesn't last that long? Because even though things went well, we're all drained from it, and then we start talking about the things that didn't go so well, and then we start talking about the things that are going to drain us even more. It's hard to get excited when you know how much work goes into something, and so we find ourselves bumping up against those empty fuel tanks as frequently as you. Third is this, I want to get the rest I really need because I don't want to give what's left over to what matters most. I don't want to give just what's left over to what matters most in my life. So Jesus has this kind of day that's recorded in the Word that I think exemplifies what happens when you and I experience something that moves life into this really unfortunate direction. But we don't have the pause to be able to react to it the way I think that we would all love to have the pause to be able to react to it. Here's what I mean. Jesus gets word that his cousin, John the Baptist, um, Jesus' mom and John the Baptist's mom were sisters. And John the Baptist was a uh, a fiery prophet that foretold that Jesus would come onto the scene, that the Messiah would arrive and he would do amazing things and he would deliver Israel and, 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 and he called people to repentance and he was controversial and he was in your face and people both mocked him and admired him. Whether Jesus admired his ministry, which I believe he did, John the Baptist baptized Jesus even though Jesus didn't need to be baptized. It was for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did it to exemplify that all of us should. There was a, there was a, a love and a relationship there, both uh, in, by blood and by ministry. Either way, Jesus lost his cousin because Herod, at the request of his daughter, brutally murdered John the Baptist by having him beheaded and then the head presented to Herod's daughter at a party. And Jesus got wind of this news, but instead of being able to just mourn and grieve and, and reflect and just have a minute to process all of that, Jesus' own disciples were around him. Let's be honest, they were usually doing or saying something that needed to be corrected, fixed, undone, apologized for. They were kind of a bunch of knuckleheads that Jesus chose to do life and ministry with. He was with them and he was with actually thousands of people who had gathered around, some to just spectate, some to be healed, some to mock him, some to accuse him, some to listen to him teach, but thousands of people drawing on him and Jesus has no time to react to any of this. So what does he do? In Matthew 14, 13 through 14, this is going to sound very similar to the passage I just read you. When Jesus learned what had happened, he got onto a boat and he went away to spend some time in a private place. What does Jesus do? Even though there's his disciples around him, there's the people around him who have need, Jesus feels drained and he goes into rest mode. And the crowds, of course, followed Jesus on foot. So here's Jesus in a boat crossing over this lake. And what does the crowd do instead of leave him alone? They start running along the side of the lake trying to get to the other side before he does. And when Jesus learned what... Uh, uh, go to the next slide, sorry. When, uh, it's... Nope. 
sorry, that all isn't there, okay? Um, Let me finish it from my notes. It's in your notes as well. When Jesus learned what happened, he got on a boat and went to spend some time in a private place. The crowds, of course, followed Jesus on foot from their cities. Though Jesus wanted solitude, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick and the lame. So let me tell you, you say, well, wait a second, I thought we were supposed to prioritize rest, and here Jesus was, he went to be alone, and he doesn't even make the full boat trip, he sees them, he has compassion, and he goes and he begins to minister and heal the sick. This is because Jesus never let his tanks get low. Whenever he felt a draw on his tank, he would pull away and refill to full. But the amazing thing was that Jesus was so intentional about refilling his tanks that even though he didn't get that alone time, he still had plenty of reserve to be able to minister. You and I, we think that we have to go nonstop because all of the needs around us demand that we go nonstop. Because listen, you may want to rest, your children don't care. You may want to rest, your spouse won't care. You may want to rest, your boss doesn't care. You may want to rest, your friends don't care. This project doesn't care. Life doesn't care. Circumstances don't care. Things that happen outside of you don't care. And that means there'll never be an opportune time for you to pull away and rest. That's why you have to make the time to do that. You have to abandon those moments. You have to abandon those people. Not forever, not for good, not to leave them in their need for long, but to get away to refill your tanks. Psalm 127.2 says this, It's useless to rise up early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know that he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? In another translation it says, Don't you know... He enjoys providing for you even while you sleep. In other words, God rewards rest. God gives you what you think you're going to do, what you think you're going to accomplish, what you think you're going to achieve. God gives you all of that while you're sleeping because you understand that all good things come from Him anyway. And as Jesus ministered to them, He ministered on behalf of God. As he healed, he healed in the name of God. He, he drew on his resources that God replenished and refilled while he rested. And then finally is this, I want to get the rest I really need because I don't want to be at peace in the sun, but panic in the storm. So there are things I'm afraid of. And there's not a lot, I'm going to be honest. It's not because I'm some tough guy. I just don't think my brain understands all danger, right? So there's a lot of things I've done that are dumb. I jumped off a roof at the church office because I thought the grass would soften the fall. And, um, and now I have lifelong plantar fasciitis because of it. Um, I picked up a rattlesnake at the church office because I thought for some reason it wasn't a rattlesnake, even though it had a rattle on it. And um, ended up in ICU and... Uh, I've done a lot of things. I was riding bikes with a guy in the church and we saw these middle schoolers 
jumping ramps, these dirt ramps they had built down in this. And I went, that looks cool. Let's go do that. And we went and um, one of the middle schoolers that was doing it videotaped it on his, his phone. And uh, I was on a mountain bike, which has full suspension. They were on BMX bike, bikes that have no suspension. So when they hit the ramp, they popped straight up. When I hit the ramp, the bike stopped and I kept going. And um, I had to swing by the ER for that one too. I <laughs> hyperextended my neck. Anyway, the point is I don't have a, a fear chip in me like most people do. Um, I, I'm not afraid of an airplane crashing while I'm in it. I'm not afraid of spiders or snakes or, or scorpions or tarantulas or lizards or vicious dogs or bears or amusement park rides. I'm not afraid of speaking in public. A lot of the things that people name is some, I'm afraid of the ocean. Maybe not right along the shore where I can see a hundred yards into it and clear water in Destin, Florida. That I'm not so afraid of. Lisa and I uh, go on cruises with our friends every once in a while from Florida. They're, they're professional cruisers. They love going on cruises and they got us going on them. And one of the things we do is we always walk around at night. It's always so pretty when you walk along the, uh, the deck and the rails right there and you look out and there is this vast, endless blackness of the ocean. No lights, no islands, nothing for as far as the eye can see. And that terrifies me. Not the water itself. I'm a pretty good swimmer. But the countless unknown creatures that are right below the surface who don't know I'm not one of them or might know I'm not one of them. I don't know what sea creatures think and no one else does either. We were talking about this two days ago and I said, oh my gosh, if I fell, there was a guy uh, two months ago and he fell over the, ocean, uh, the uh, railing and he was in the water for like 25 hours or something like that before they were able to recover him. Eight minutes tops, I would just drown myself. I'd go under and the first time something touched my leg, I'd go, that's it. And I would suck in as much water as I could and drown myself. Because if they recovered me 20 something hours later, they'd just have to put me in a straitjacket and put me in a pattern. I would have lost my mind. I'd be a shell of a, I would be Elijah. Kill me now, God. I'm ready to go. You're wondering, is there a point to this story? And there is. I go to bed every night on that cruise and I sleep like a baby. Why? Because cruise ships don't sink. There was one actually. In 2012, the Costa Concordia, you probably remember it. But it was a really, really weird one-off. The, the, the captain and the crew were a bunch of knuckleheads, actually abandoned the ship. But they hit a rock because they were navigating by sight. Very Titanic-ish of them. Bunch of tools. They hit a rock. It was only 300 yards offshore. And the ship didn't actually sink. It just capsized over. 
my, my point is this. I sleep like a baby. I rest in my confidence and trust in the strength of the ship and the competence of the crew more than my fear of the water. It's not that I don't fear going into the water. It's that I trust all of that more. See where I'm going? That it's not that you won't have fears about life. It's not that there won't be things that are, you're tempted to be drawn into. It's that if you place your faith and trust in something stronger and greater and more competent and more stable and stronger than any of that is, then you can rest in that confidence. You get to just sleep knowing that it's handled and taken care of. Now, be honest, if we're in a plane, and I've been in some where the turbulence was so strong, I started to wonder whether this would end poorly. But with relative quickness, I just go, none of my worry or screaming or crying or anxiety or fear changes this circumstance. If God wants me to land safely, I'm going to land safely. And if he doesn't want to prevent the crash of that plane, then he won't. But I trust in the providence, the wisdom, the omniscience of God. Listen to this final story out of Matthew 8, 23 through 26. Then Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him. And out of nowhere, so they're all in the boat, and out of nowhere a vicious storm blew over the sea. And waves were lapping up over the boat, threatening to overtake it. Yet, Jesus was asleep. Sound asleep. Storms splashing on them. They weren't in these enclosed kind of boats. They were large fishing boats, open. So it's not as if it was protecting Jesus from the sound of the wind or the the waves splashing on top of him. He just slept and frightened, not to mention confused. How could anyone sleep through this? The disciples woke him up. Don't you hate when somebody wakes you up from a good nap? Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Look at their declaration. They had already decided it was going to end with them drowning. And Jesus replies, please. Good grief. What are you so afraid of? You of little faith. Now, I I will tell you, That must have been more confusing for the disciples who go, okay, maybe he wasn't aware. He was sleeping. Don't know how he could have been. But now it just seems like he's unaware of reality. Jesus just says, this indicates your declaration we're going to drown just indicates how little faith you have. And my sleeping through this might be an indication of how much faith I do have. Jesus got up and he told the wind and the waves to calm down, and they did. In the older translations, it says, he stood and spoke and said, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed him. And the sea became still and calm once again, and the disciples were astonished. You see, you and I as followers of Christ, you and I as disciples of Christ, you as I as believers in Christ, We have to be able to be in the boat with Jesus and act in accordance to the faith that he demonstrates. 
not respond to the circumstances that we see with our eyes. Because can I tell you that Jesus always sees what's ahead, not just what's happening right now. Jesus understands that the wind and the waves already obey him. So he knew that the wind and the wave would not take his life and would not take the lives of those that were with him. They saw the circumstances and they cried out and they had determined that because of what they saw, by the evidence of what they saw, it was all coming to a tragic end. And Jesus said, it's your lack of faith of who you're with that makes you say things like that. You could have just had a good nap. We would have ended up on some shore somewhere. But instead you woke me up. And now I'm cranky, Jesus. Now I'm going to have to yell at nature. And I don't like yelling at nature. Do you see how Jesus prioritized rest in every circumstance? But not just every circumstance, the worst of circumstances. When he had been drained and there was nothing left of him, he stole moments away and he got off by himself far away from people. And when he saw the needs of people around him, he, he still had a moment in a boat by himself and just said, God, I need to be refilled and replenished because my heart is for these people and I want to minister to them while they're here. And when circumstances were stormy around him, he slept like a baby because Jesus has confidence in things that you and I are still learning to have confidence and trust in. You won't finish the race well if you don't rest. And you won't rest if you don't make it a priority. If you don't schedule your times of rest like you schedule appointments and you schedule time with family and you schedule soccer games and you schedule going with the places you go and go to work in the morning like you go to work in the morning, do all the things that feel like you must, absolute must do them, they're not optional. Can I tell you, if you make rest optional, it will destroy you, the things that you're experiencing, you, even the good things in your life, parenting, relationships with your spouse, the, the, the relationship with people at church, all of it will drain you because God built us for rest. And on the seventh day, God rested. It was so important to him that it was part of the creative process. However long that process actually took, I don't know whether it was literally six days of creation and the seventh day of rest or each of those days represents a billion or a trillion years. I don't care. What I do know is that God said, I rest too. And Jesus rests too. And who do you and I think we are that we don't need to rest? You want to finish your goals you want to accomplish your resolutions, you want to reach the end of this race successfully, whether it be financially, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in your marriage, in your parenting, and all the things you would aspire to achieve, if you want to succeed in them, you have to rest in the race. You bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to just give each other a moment to respond to this. First, I want to ask this. If you'd say, I'm going to be honest, I'm here, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not yet a Christ follower. But I'm here. And I want to be. If that's you, I want to tell you, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to stand up and come down here. You don't have to high-five me. You don't 
have to go through some class, you can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ right here, right now by just saying yes to him. Because the Bible says he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks and anyone who opens that door, he will come in. It says he'll commune with you, he'll begin friendship with you, he'll eat with you, he'll begin relationship with you. That's the God that sits in this room with you right now, knee to knee, face to face with you, just knocking at the door of your heart. And if that's you and you want to begin a relationship with him, you can just throw a hand up just between you and I. Thank you. Thanks. I'm going to pray this prayer if you raised your hand or if you didn't and you want to. Jesus Christ, I believe in you. I don't know you like I want to know you. I know about you, but I don't know you. Not in relationship, not in intimacy, not in closeness. I haven't invited you into my life yet, but I'm doing it now. I want you to come into my mind, into my heart, into my plans, into my priorities, into my purpose, into everything that I am. You created me, so I want to give back to you what you created so that you can lead me and guide me and disciple me and teach me and steer me towards my highest and best life and everything I do, my relationships, my finances, my, 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 my emotional and mental health and everything that I am that I struggle with and things that I'm blind to, change me from the inside out and make me what I was created to be. Wash away every failure and every mistake, everything I've done intentionally or unintentionally to move myself off a path I didn't even know I was supposed to be on. And I'll follow you. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, we have something outside at the connection kiosk we want to give you after service. But for everyone else, if you'll say this, I do not discipline myself. I do not schedule myself. I do not prioritize rest in my life like I need to. And I'm making the commitment today to start doing that. I'm going to go home today and begin to write into every day a moment that I can retreat, recover, recuperate, refresh, regroup, be with God, be alone, and be at rest. If that's you, would you just throw your hand up? Yeah. Some are even too tired to throw their hand up. Father, give us the determination, the instinct to know when we're beginning to deplete our tanks. Give us the wisdom and the discernment not to be so foolish as to let the tanks go even drier and run even lower. Begin to introduce that sediment, that settled junk that doesn't belong there where we're making decisions poorly, dumb decisions because we're drained, where even after doing good things, we feel that ad adrenaline high, we don't understand there's a crash coming after. So even after the good things, we want to schedule in time alone, time alone with you, rest in you, just be with you. Naps and snacks, God, how wonderfully spiritual that is, where we just take moments to recover, recuperate, refresh, and renew. Thank you, God, in advance for the results of our intentionality, of our purposefulness, 
of our scheduling of what feels like it should just happen naturally, but it won't. It won't ever happen naturally. So God, we schedule in what you prioritized and we do it for your glory and our health. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.